As some of you know, not all of you, I'm sure, as some of you know, uh, I was in the hospital the last few days of last week, and uh, I had what they call diagnosed with AFib or atrial fibrillation. The good news is uh, the limitations are very minimal, uh, mainly to do with taking medicine and what I can eat or uh, along those lines. The bad news is I do not uh, quite know what the long-term prospects are uh, uh, and uh, at all. Some of you are living with the very same thing here in the congregation, so I know very little about it. I plan to find out a little more. While there, I was uh, taken to the ICU. Now, that sounds very ominous, and some of you, I think, uh, Uh, heard that, but they didn't have any other hospital beds, so they put me in there. But then it was good because they couldn't control my my, uh, heart rate, and uh, it was a good place to be, and I was there about two and a half days. So I want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, While there, um, I I looked up from my bed, and uh, there was a woman, a nurse, standing over me, and she said, don't I know you? And then she said, yes, I know you. I was a student of yours some years ago. Now, this information alarmed me, if you want to know the truth. (laughs) I said, well, I hope I gave you a good grade. (laughs) She smiled and said, you did. Quite relieved. As my manner runs toward the curious side... I asked her many questions over the course of two days, two and a half, about everything, about the room, the equipment in it, about everything I could think of. And finally she said to me, you asked too many questions. And uh, my response to her was, most people do not ask enough questions. And um, I do believe that. Because uh, knowledge of a person or a thing, or in my case, a condition, I find to be of great benefit and, and to be a, a great relief. Uh, ignorance is not bliss. Knowledge of things is the way the Lord made us to know things, to understand, to inquire. Uh, I am uh, preaching on worship, as you know. This is the second sermon on worship uh, in a series of sermons. And worship, and hear my words carefully here, uh, my description, worship is an activity. It is an activity that we are called as Christians to perform. But to perform this activity without knowledge robs us of its blessing and joy. Now think for a moment. That that is clear in almost everything you do. Can you imagine a cook uh, cooking without knowledge? You can't be a good cook unless you know something about food and something about food preparation. It's not possible. So in order to be good at cooking, you have to have knowledge. Think about a golfer. 
A golfer cannot be a good golfer without the knowledge of the game and without the knowledge of, of equipment and how to use it. It's just simply would be a good walk spoiled, as someone said, going around the course. Of course, I don't think anyone walks anymore around the golf course. <laughs> Same way with worship. When last week I talked about worship as being something that we enter into, we enter into the presence of God, into history, into redemptive history. Worship, though, must be entered into, if you will, with a certain knowledge and understanding of what it is. Now, I realize that uh, we do not have the kind of uh, society in which we can all be on the same page. You know, there was a time in human history when a society would go to church, uh, no matter whether it was church A, B, C, D, E, F, and it would pretty much be on the same page. They were all singing from the same hymnal. Well, certainly that's not the case today. And consequently, there has been a great deal of ignorance uh, with respect to worship and how to understand it and why it is important why should we engage in this activity and how should we engage in it? Well, worship is an activity just as cooking and golf are activities. Thus, one needs to know what worship is and what makes worship the blessing and benefit uh, that is described in the scriptures, in particular in Psalm 22, as you had that read to you, Psalm 22. Now, there is no adequate definition of worship, just as there is no adequate definition of religion. I have tried for years to come up with some kind of definition of religion that would encompass them all. It's not possible. So what scholars do, they end up providing a functional definition or some kind of description of what religion is. And we have to do the same thing about worship. And I was casting about looking for some kind of handy definition of worship. Uh, the most famous one is very inadequate. And Evelyn Underhill's book on worship, written in the 30s, has an opening and wonderful dramatic definition of worship, but it is wholly inadequate for a Christian uh, to, to uh, say this is what worship is. Well, I did find a pretty decent description of worship from Godfrey, or, or Jeffrey, maybe it is, Wainwright. Uh, I have read his writings much. He is a professor at Duke University, maybe retired now. But a wonderful understanding of what worship is all about. And he says this, Worship is a faithful human response to the revelation of God's being, character, beneficence, and will. He goes on to say that in worship, God is adored simply as God. God's character is praised. Thanks are given for God's acts. And conformity to God's will is sought. Now, I would have to read that a few times maybe before it actually sinks in. But that's actually a pretty good description of what worship is about. It has to do with God. But remember, many religions have uh, a worship or devotion or something, but at the heart of that religion, there is no God. 
Christianity uniquely worships the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have an understanding of who God is. And this God has revealed himself to us, and our worship is a response to that. If you will, and this is very important, God has served us by making himself known through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and our lives are then a response to that. We now serve him in worship. Now, the first point I want to make about worship is this. That worship, in a sense, is a kind of duty for every Christian. It's not an option. It actually is a duty. If you read Psalm 22 and start at verse 22, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. And then in Psalm 100, which I read several times, uh, though I almost chose it as the text, but since everyone... Uh, at one time or another in VBS or Bible school, memorizes that psalm. I, I decided not to do it, but the psalmist says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Now these, for the most part, are in the imperative, meaning that it is a command. It is a command. Therefore, it becomes something that is an obligation or a duty for us to do. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. And in the Psalm 22, he goes on following that. And if you look at the, at the, the uh, uh, language here, he says, praise him, honor him, and revere him. Now, this is the duty of each and every Christian. As we come to the Psalms and other places, we see the community, the congregation at worship. Sometimes we see an individual at worship, usually a leader of worship. Psalm 100 is very important because he says, worship the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. Worship then is an activity to be performed, but more to the point, it is an activity that is a duty to be done. Now, let me reinforce that with uh, some comments uh, from uh, making observations from the New Testament. There is, of course, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek, and there is a word for worship uh, that you find in the New Testament in several places. It's just simply translated as worship or service or something like that, but it is the word uh, liturgy. And we talk about the worship and the liturgy. What is interesting is that that word is made up of two Greek words. The first word has to do with people, the first part of the word, and the second part has to do with work. What it is then is just simply looking at the word, worship is the, is the people's work. It is something that we have as a duty to do. Now, almost all of you somewhere along the line have duties and they involve work. I have to go to work. I have to do this. Otherwise, I don't eat or I can't send my child to school or I can't do this or that. 
We, we work so that we can have the benefits of it. But we don't get up and say, should I do this or should I not? I think I'll just pass over uh, that today. Well, uh, at least in the past, if you did not work, it uh, became quite painful for you. And so therefore, in a sense, it was your duty or obligation. Likewise, when it comes to worship, it is an activity that is our duty to do. It is something that God wants from us. So worship, liturgy, is the people's work. And I want to point out that this people's work is something that is mentioned or, or assumed throughout the New Testament in many and various ways. And when you begin to look at worship that way, and you read the scriptures looking for, if you will, this kind of idea, you find it in many and various places in the New Testament. I was struck by looking at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. Here is what the writer to Hebrews says in that verse. Through Jesus, therefore, he says, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So when you worship God, in some sense, it is also a sacrifice of praise. It is an obligation or a duty that you have to do. Just like the high priest in the temple of Israel had an absolute obligation to fulfill certain functions. And it was important to the community. And in a sense, you too have an important obligation to this community that we might together worship and serve the Lord. He goes on to say, to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Worship, then, is an activity that is a duty. We ascribe that glory to God which is due his name, and it is something that he seeks from us. Now, I have another point I want to make here. The place of this duty actually is mentioned. Now, there are two kinds of worship at least, if you will. Informal, private, family worship. And one of the reasons that we list Prayer requests in the bulletin is so that you can take that bulletin with you. And when you read your Bibles and have your devotions, uh, your quiet time, whatever you call it, you can pray for those people. Pray for those needs. Pray, as I often do, that doors will be opened and doors will be closed, that God might guide and lead us in the paths of righteousness, but also in our everyday work away world. We have to take care of our families. We have obligations and we need opportunities to fulfill that. But worship, for the most part that I'm talking about, is, is if you will, corporate worship. That which we do together as the people of God. If you will, worship is something that we do together. We serve the Lord together. And the place of this duty is to be found in the house of God. In Psalm 22 and in Psalm 100, the word congregation is mentioned, meaning that the place where this is going to take place will be in the congregation or the assembled people. Now, that could have been in the temple, and most of the time the Psalms have to do with the temple because the synagogue had not yet been instituted. 
But later on in the exile, that was shifted when they had no temple to the synagogue. The word synagogue means synagogue. It means to gather together, to form a congregation for the purpose of worshiping God. In the New Testament, that is assumed. And one of the enlightening verses, as far as I'm concerned, is found in the New Testament, is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And if you want, you can turn there. I find that to be a verse that is important. Properly read, it bears uh, much insight for us. As you look at chapter 3, verse 20, it is in the form, <coughs> if you will, of a benediction. And notice what Paul says. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Now notice what he says. To him be glory in the church. The church is a necessary institution, just as the congregation in Israel was an absolutely necessary institution. Now, I've checked other commentators. I'm not uh, that, that that is a correct reading. He really is focusing on the church. The glory that arises from the assembled people, the praise from the lips of his people who ascribe that glory that is due to his name. Paul has that in mind. What a, an enlightening verse. He goes on to say, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. One of the great things about heaven is that we will be assembled and we will indeed all together, the whole church, all those that have lived in the past and those who live in the present and those who will live in the future until Jesus comes, we will be assembled and we'll ascribe that glory due to God's name. And that's a great comfort, by the way, uh, to the living when loved ones die and pass away. It is a great comfort, for sure, uh, to those to say to them, yes, we, we will be assembled in his presence. We will even sit at his table, so to speak. So Ephesians 3.20 is an important uh, matter, to say the least. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the emphasis that we are talking about is clearly on corporate worship. It is social. It is corporate. Now, the next point I want to make, and make it as briefly as I can, it is this. Not only is worship an activity that is our duty, worship is an activity that finds its perfection in us through discipline. Now, let me say that again. Worship is an activity that finds its perfection in us through the exercise of discipline. Discipline is required for the Christian life. It takes discipline if we are to exercise our reason and our faculties to apprehend the Christian faith. The Christian faith actually is more doctrinal, more theological than any other religion on the face of the earth, by far. Christianity is not necessarily a legalistic religion like Islam is, 
or even like Judaism is. And it certainly is not in any way, shape, or form like the duties that are bound upon a Hindu with respect to Dharma, or even in the Buddhist community. Christianity really is the story about God and what He has done for us and our response to Him. That is the whole structure of our salvation. God serves us that we might serve Him. This is what your life is about. In a real sense, it is the raison d'etre or the reason for being. It is the fulfillment of what it means to be human. St. Augustine understood this, and that's why his words are so striking. O Lord, you have made our hearts to serve you. To serve you. And it is through our private and corporate worship that we do. It takes discipline, for instance, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Why do we have in the scriptures all of those admonitions to put away some things and to put on other things, put on the Lord Jesus Christ? It requires discipline. It requires discipline, too, in worship. Worship is subject to discipline. Let me make a statement maybe that you've never heard. We don't naturally like to worship. We would rather have a kind of worship that actually entertains us rather than using biblical forms. But once you begin to use biblical forms and get used to them and incorporate them in your life, it lifts you to a level of joy and fulfillment that you can find no other way. Because it takes the focus off of you and it places it rightly on that one who is, if you will, supreme gravitas. That being who is true being, everlasting being, and he is rightly to be praised. Worship is perfected then as we learn about it in our corporate undertaking of it, doing it, and studying it. Worship involves the total person. Whenever you come into this place to worship, your mind will be engaged. Your hearts will be engaged. And your wills will be engaged. Furthermore, the aesthetic sense that you have uniquely as human beings will be engaged. I'm always amazed that our, our sense of beauty is, is unique. Animals don't have it. You drive to a pretty location and look at the scenery and you look out and say, what a lovely, beautiful place. I guarantee you it's lost on my cat and my dog. <laughs> Think of that. And we are uniquely equipped to worship the living God because we are created in his image. One of the most, one must then learn to worship as much as anything else. We have to overcome our tendency to serve ourselves and to serve God. The worship of God is by grace through faith. Therefore, it requires discipline on your part 
to apprehend and understand that grace and to respond in trust and obedience. Yes, worship. Worship, we must study it. The church has a worship form. I'm I'm impressed with the New Testament, particularly in certain places where the Apostle Paul tells us what we should do in worship. And and I'm I'm dumbfounded, if you will, at times to how that seems to escape in many worship services I attend when I'm on vacation and other times. Uh, There are certain forms that we should not leave aside. Worship centers around God's revelation and speaking to us through his word and the sacraments. Those are holy signs that he has ordained. And so worship then is an important matter. Uh, I want to just illustrate through one thing. Uh, In your bulletin, I want you to look there if you have it before you. I hope you still do. I'll just explain one thing, why a form is important, historically and otherwise. Every Lord's Day, you come across a certain prayer. As you look at this bulletin, there are fixed prayers and there are free prayers. Those fixed prayers are in there so that all of us might learn the language of prayer and enter into the prayers of those who've prayed them before. Almost all of these are historic prayers that are in the bulletin. When John Calvin went to Geneva, John Knox observed what he was doing there, and he said it's the most perfect school of Christ on earth. Now, that's debatable, but John Knox thought so. John Calvin reformed the worship. He wanted it to be biblical. He wanted to focus on the word. He wanted to focus on the sacraments. He called that service a form of prayers. And throughout the service, there were prayers just like this. There are many prayers. But one I want to draw your attention today. Every Lord's Day, before we read the scriptures, there is a prayer of illumination. Have you ever noticed that? You ever wonder why it's there? It has a theological reason for being there, but it also has a historic example. It goes all the way back to the early church. Before the scriptures were read and the preacher preached, the presence of the Holy Spirit was invoked that he might come and energize the word that he had given and that he might give unction to the preacher. So, yes, it is stylized, but it is a wonderful lesson to know that that is an important prayer for the word And the spirit go together. They're not to be divorced. You get all kinds of fanaticisms in Christianity whenever you separate those two. But if you understand that it is by nature, that is supernature, that word and spirit go together. And that prayer is important liturgically. It teaches us that it is not by my power or might, says the Lord, but it is through his spirit that we're enabled to serve him and to worship him. So that prayer becomes important, and it's just before the reading of the scripture. Oh, Lord, give us illumination. Give us understanding. When I go to a service somewhere and the scripture is read and the preacher preaches and there's no prayer to invoke the Holy Spirit, I, I can still worship, but I'm just a bit, bit disappointed. Where is that prayer? 
that calls upon the Holy Spirit to come and join himself to this word or this sacrament that it might truly be effective as an instrument of God. And so there is an illustration where knowledge helps us understand an element of worship. Here is a prayer for illumination. Your worship is important then in matters like that. We are to teach this to our children. I'm getting to the end here and I want to say one more thing. What is interesting is about worship is that it is so crucial and important to you that it will determine what you believe. Now let me give you a formula that comes from the early church. Lexorandi, lex credendi. That's a, that's a Latin phrase, sounds nice. What does it mean? The rule of prayer is the rule of faith. Now let me explain it this way. All of you know that what you believe and what you understand God to be will shape your worship. But here's what is lost on many people today. It was not lost on the Hebrew prophets. The God you worship and your worship will also determine what you believe. That's why the command against idolatry, if you worship those empty things, you will adopt empty lifestyles, you will adopt empty values, and your life will be destroyed. For you worship nothing. You will end up believing in everything. There is a wonderful statement attributed uh, to many people, and it goes like this. If you cease to believe in God, you will begin to believe in everything. That means you will become more superstitious. If you worship and focus on the living God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it will indeed shape your theology and it will also shape your outlook on life. And so that wonderful phrase is an important matter. Let me illustrate it this way. In closing, the very first creedal statement in the Bible, in the New Testament for Christians, is Jesus is Lord. Now think of that, that phrase. It is a creedal statement. Jesus is Lord. Very simple. Three words. If you look in our hymnal, you'll see the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And you'll see the Westminster Confession, which is very long. But the earliest and most basic creed that Christians used in their worship service was just simply an acclamation of Jesus is Lord. Now, you can study that two ways. You can reflect upon it and begin to think, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? And you try to tease out and understand what that means and the implication of it. Well, it means he's sovereign. It means then that he could be worshiped just like the Father. It means then that I could actually in some prayers and there are examples even in the New Testament, you can pray to him for he is Lord. Now what I'm doing is reflecting theologically. Scholars actually call that second tier theology. 
You know what first tier theology is? When you say Jesus is Lord in an act of worship. You are immediately worshiping Jesus is Lord. You're not taking time to reflect out what all that means. You have simply fixed your eyes upon him and there is certain immediacy in the worship and the affirmation to your brothers and sisters around you that it identifies you immediately and ascribes glory to God. Jesus is Lord. It is an act of worship as well as an act of reflection. Jesus is Lord. I cannot emphasize enough this principle. What you worship, you become like. My friend, if you worship the triune God, I believe that you will get a vision and a sense of the way things really are that you can get no other way. You can't get it through study, even. You can't get it through discipline, or whatever. You can't go to the book of nature and talk to every scientist and philosopher and every politician and sociologist, whomever they may be, and get this. But the most simple babe in Christ can begin to get a corrected view of what life is really about as they fix their eyes upon Jesus and worship him who is Lord of all. Therefore, we need to be regular in this activity. You're regular in your golf game, are you not? You regularly love to sit down to a good meal, do you not? Why not then make it your habit to be in the assembly to worship the triune God who is shaping your entire life and future for his glory and your good through worship. Amen.